Good. Are we all back? I'd like to say something tonight, uh, basically on the, the larger topic of the Eightfold Path. As you know, the Eightfold Path is the Buddhist panacea against all, all the ills of the world. And um, the, the teaching that I'm interested in tonight is uh, not a famous teaching. Buddhism is a big story, and some teachings make it onto the hit list, and some teachings just <laughs> never quite seem to make it. Tonight's teaching never quite seemed to have made it onto the famous Buddhist lists, and you know, Buddhists have many lists. They're a kind of list-obsessed folks. It's easy to understand why, uh, if you don't have books, and nobody was writing at the time of the Buddha, well, actually, people were writing, but kings would leave decrees and business folk would leave bills but no spiritual tradition with any self-respect would use writing so the Buddhists just you know followed along on this on this line and didn't write stuff down what you do when you don't write things down and you think it's important you rely on strategies how to remember mnemonic techniques one of them is a shopping list, for example. If you don't have anything to write down, you kind of count them. You say, okay, milk, butter, cucumbers, and an eggplant. Yeah, four of them. Then you do milk, butter, cucumber, and then you know one's missing. So what is missing? You know one is missing. What could, it's not milk, it's not butter, and so forth. And then chances are that you will remember the eggplant. Just because you know there is one missing, and the three others I already have, that's how oral literature used to organize important bits. So Buddhism is no different from any other oral literature, and they kind of made lists. In fact, Buddhist teachings are grouped. Some, some teachings are grouped around numerical lists, and some teachings are around, grouped around topics. If you look at the, the Buddhist canon, you have <clears throat> one big, fat, five-volume type book, uh, is organized around different topics and one equally big fat book is organized around lists of ones right up to elevens. Yeah? So this is just what, um, what people who don't write things down, who don't have glossaries, indices, contents pages and a search function, yeah? command F, run through the canon, which we can do now, uh, those folks would just do lists. And then you can only remember so many lists. And some lists seem to become more famous than other lists. And unfortunately, that doesn't seem to do justice to the whole teaching. So there's always kind of lists who get forgotten or get tucked in somewhere towards the end of the collection. My little list for tonight is one of these lists who is buried somewhere in the southern part of one of the canons. It's the a little list, and it's called the Sun series. And it's, uh, it's connected. Uh, there's a little image that goes ahead of the list. It says, as, as the sunrise is preceded by the first reddening of the sky, or by dawn, in the same way, the Eightfold Path is preceded by this following list of seven items. Yeah? And then it goes about this list of seven items, which I'll give you in a second. Remember the Eightfold Path has this funny word, Samma, in front of it. Yeah? So, Samma Ditti, Samma Sankapa, Samma Vajja, Samma Kamanta, Samma Vayama, Samma Ajiva, Samma Sati, Samma Samadhi. So that Samma bit means, generally is translated as right which isn't the opposite of wrong or right or left or so, but there's two meanings. One of them is it means complete. So complete understanding, complete wholesome intention, complete uh, wholesome speech, complete wholesome action, and so forth. So that's the kind of the Eightfold Path at the level of realization. That's kind of Arahat's business. And that's very nice for those people for whom that happens, yeah? And for the rest of us, 
The other meaning is very, very pertinent. The other meaning means appropriate attention, appropriate intention, appropriate understanding, appropriate action, appropriate speech, appropriate livelihood, appropriate effort, appropriate mindfulness, appropriate collectedness of mind. So let's remember that appropriateness bit. So the Eightfold Path, okay, that's what we expect completely free beings to behave like. You know, they're all kind, they completely understand, they have very good samadhi, very good mindfulness, and so forth. Their livelihood is spotless. Uh, fair enough. Yeah. It's good for them. For, for us, we have to develop this. So for us, the appropriateness bit, I find, is a lot more encouraging. Rather than looking at how high the beam is, yeah, we're looking actually for things, well, this Eightfold Pass is something that arises. You know, and curious Buddhists are always interested in what makes things happen. You know, that's the big thing about Buddhism. It doesn't say what it is, it says how it is. You know, that's the real big offering of Buddhist thinking, Buddhist contribution to basically uh, Indian history of mind, or actually now no longer just Indian history of mind, it has arrived here. Although we're just scraping the surface by my books, and I will probably not live out to see you know, that it has completely taken root here, but we have started. So Buddhist contribution in many ways to the history of mind is that they are interested in not what something is, but in how it works. There are parallels. American pragmatism is not too far away, it's beckoning from afar, you know. How does it work? How is it going? It's not important what it is, but it's important how it functions. If it's useful and it I find out how it functions, oh, let's do more of it. If it's not useful and unwholesome and makes me miserable, let's do less of it. If I know how it works I, and I do it, I can do less of it. Very simple. That's a real big shift from, say, Brahmani, Brahminical teachings at the time of the Buddha. They were very interested in what things were. Is the soul and Brahman identical? Is the Atman and the Brahman identical? Buddhists say it's not really important whether they're identical or not. Important is what you do when you have toothache. You know? How do you cope with anxiety? Uh, are there things you can do to be more peaceful when things go wrong in your life? So Buddhists are kind of... They, they practice something like spiritual realism. and They ask that kind of question. And they're quite blunt when it comes to asking other kinds of questions. They say, this, this doesn't go anywhere. Or even if you find out, it doesn't actually help you. So here, these seven qualities are asking the question, what brings about the arising of the Eightfold Path? What brings about these things that the Buddha says are so useful? Right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right uh, livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right stillness of mind. What brings about this stuff? And then he comes up with this list, list of seven, the, the not famous list. So the first part on that list is something called noble friendship, Kalyana Mitita. Now this is a great mentioning. That quality doesn't really have much uh, list exposure. Yeah? Kalyanamitita isn't on many lists. Although it's basically the root of Sangha, the root of community. Noble friendship, good friendship is the beginning of community. And you know, if you think we're a success story as human beings, then this is very directly due to the fact that we're capable of empathetic awareness. That we can connect with others. That we can team up with others. And that only happens because human beings care. They notice what's happening with others and they're capable of caring and, uh, let's put it like that, attuned response. That has saved our, you know, has saved our bacon very early on, you know, when things were a bit tight and the evolutionary process, the things that have been out there a lot more fast, a lot bigger jaws, run, jump, swim, climb a lot better than we did. And yet we found our niche somehow, yeah? And one way we found that niche, despite overwhelming competition from other things, um, because we could connect with others, we could team up. 
we started to find out that things work better if we work in groups. We can't outdo crocodiles because they're, they can eat things like our size, but we can find out what they do and we can tell each other and we can tell our kids and we can stay away from where they go or we can even catch them you know, if, we're, if there's many of us and so forth. We learn to do things and we learn to pass on our skills to the next generation. And once things got better, even to a generation further, that's where grandparents come in. Yeah. And that really helped that kind of finding appropriate evolutionary niche that helped that human business a lot. Females felt safe enough uh, when they were pregnant to grow bigger and bigger babies. Babies felt safe enough to be more and more dependent on their parents. There was people around who were looking out after the pregnant female and after little completely dependent creatures. Little kangaroos just drop out and climb up into mommy's pouch after birth. Little human beings die if you let them to their own devices. Yeah. So this sort of empathy thing isn't just a, a nice Buddhist sort of do good to think. Yeah. This has profound physiological implications. The development of the neocortex is a direct result of social stability. So this empathy thing Buddhists harp on about is powerful stuff. And how does this empathy thing come about? It's through connection and the capacity to attune to what's going on in other people. In other words, me taking serious what you experience. This isn't really always the case for, for, for living things. If you have ever met monitor lizards, you know, even if you have a pile of them, somehow they don't give you the same feeling as a beach full of American tourists. <laughs> they may not know each other, they may not even like each other, these tourists, but, you know, there's something happening there. Yeah? There's something is happening there. Little staking of claims for where I put my cloth, my seat, my occasional nods over there, what's she reading, how's she looking, what are they eating? Yeah. Where did you get that from? You know, we, we kind of we take notice of each other. If you've ever seen monitor lizards or leg worms or something of that sort of nature, things that rely a little bit on um, brain structures that we also have and occasionally we even default to, uh, but that we have kind of outgrown a little bit. Most of us have most of the time outgrown this. Uh, there's different things happening, isn't it? We pick up on things. At the root of this, we find in a capacity to empathize. And the cultivated form of empathy is friendship, is looking out for each other. Kalyana Mitata is the root of community, the root of Sangha. In the Buddha's words, it's the root, you know, when one of his disciples claimed it was half of the, of, of the monastic, half of the contemplative life, the Buddha upbraided him and says, said, do not say so, Ananda says, it's the whole of the contemplative life, not the half. You know, Buddhists tell you double things. They give you very mixed messages. It's, you have to be very careful. They tell you to be alone and independent and sit and not talk. But then they also tell you to be friend, have friends, have people that look out for you and look out on for people. They tell you to go and sit alone under a tree and then they find out that the same guys who are sitting under the tree, in the evening they get together and they talk throughout the whole night. Yeah? If you turn the page, suddenly you find the Buddha actually spending 45 years uh, trying to organize socially and in, in a practical way uh, communities. He actually founded monastic communities. You know? While monastic communities in Christianity, which is the other big monastic tradition over here, uh, you know, way, way post-dated. The, the founder of that religion starts somewhere off in the Syrian deserts before the Syrian deserts had some other things happening, uh, you know, wasn't founded by uh, Jesus Christ, monastic communities. He had a few followers, but he never actually put down monastic rules. For that, we had to wait four or five centuries. But the Buddha actually started this off in his lifetime. This is one of the first things he did. He started to organize his communities. This guy was serious about relationship while telling his monks to be independent, 
not hang around chatting and meditate. He was quite serious about community. If you look at his daily life, if you look at his efforts, you see that he put an immense amount of effort into social organizational jobs. Getting this right down to his deathbed. He was ordaining people, he was receiving a novice, he was telling somebody should be punished. He was asking whether people had questions on his deathbed. Now, this man took relationship very serious. So Kalyana Mitata, the noble, the path of noble friendship, or the cultivation of noble friendship is the first of our qualities that brings about the arising of the Eightfold Path. It brings about the, the virtues that basically, in a nutshell, make for liberation in Buddhist teaching. At the other end, let me jump from the first to the seventh. At the other end, because those two are like pillars of those seven qualities, at the other end we have a quality that is called Yoniso Manasikara, which is a fascinating uh, concept. It is an introspective type of awareness. Literally, Manasikara means the functioning of mind. It is the Buddhist word for attention. It's not mindfulness. The mindfulness world has to learn about this more clearly, that attention is not equal to mindfulness. There are differences there, and for that we probably would need another evening. But let me just state that boldly. Uh, attention is something that happens all the time. It's a universal factor of mind. It tends to be episodic and topical, and the magic of it starts to happen when we make it continuous. But attention is a very mundane, everyday function of mind, and it's not particularly exalted. It's not particularly moral. Also, it doesn't even make us particularly free. Mindfulness is a bit more elevated and has a few other facets which uh, would need a little more breath than I have right now. But manasikara is attention, and yoni so, it's an interesting word. Yoni is the womb, the uterus, more technically speaking. And it is an attention that understands things from the womb. So, metaphoric meaning from where things take their origin. The Latin concept of matrix comes very close to the same meaning. So, understanding things from where they take their origin. This is a powerful notion. Think of digging out the roots of a plant that you want to pot into something bigger. And you don't just kind of pull it out. Yeah? You take where you think the roots go and then you dig around a little further. If it's small, you do that with the spoon. If it's big, you do that with your hands. Yeah? You loosen the earth and then you lift it out so that you have the root with the earth that covers the root. And Yoniso Manasikara is a type of attention that understands things in the same way, that it takes things with the roots. Yeah? It's a radical type of attention. Yeah? Radix, the root, in its old sense, not as a radical left-winger or a right-winger, but radical from the root upwards. In the same way, the term Yoniso Manasikara is a type of attention that understands things from their origin. Now, this is not <clears throat> profound meditation. This is not deep samadhi. This is not knowledge. It's just a type of attending closely to something. So sometimes people translate it as wise attention, sometimes people translate it as appropriate attention, sometimes people translate it as skillful attention or methodical attention. You know, all of these are right and none of them is exclusive. That's the truth. Yeah? And it's maybe necessary to just make a mental note of this term. So how does that work in practice? It means I apply my attention in a very deliberately slow and deep manner. Generally, that means I go over things a lot more slow than I'm used to. You know, our attention usually jumps. Generally, it jumps to the loudest things. Yeah, we have got this nice saying in English: uh, "It's the loudest wheel that, it's the loudest squeaking wheel that gets the oil." I think. Yeah, something like that. Sorry, this is bad German English, but you get you get my gist. So usually our attention does exactly that. It jumps, if we have a say in it, to the nice bit, 
Yeah. Where do I go and sit? What is there to see, eat, hear, listen, be with? Yeah. The prettiest smile, the softest cushion, the sunniest spot. Uh, the thing that holds most promise. That's when I have a say. That's where my attention go, goes. Sometimes when things are, you know, not nice, then my attention goes to the thing that is, that impinges, in the loudest way. And you know, willy nilly, I give my attention to things. The screech, the cold, you know, the unpleasant guy, the sound I don't like, and that drags away my attention. So my attention is often not given deliberately. It is not bestowed in a sort of deep and methodical way. It is just chumpy. Jumping to the bits I love, very nice, give me more of it. And jumping to the bits I don't like because they somehow are irritants. Now, Yoni Somanasikara is a type of attention that is deliberate and it is slow. It doesn't jump to conclusion. It is capable of sifting, it is capable of fathoming, it is capable of holding, it is capable of slowing down and suspending judgment. That's a powerful statement, suspending judgment. Because, you know, jumpy attention is usually followed by jumpy judgments. That's how perception operates. Ah, okay, I've heard of this, thank you very much, I know what it is. I don't need to look, I don't need to feel, I don't need to pay further attention I've completely understood what you mean. You know, and sometimes this is good enough. And we save time. And often it is not good enough. Often we just wallow. We warm up old perception. We paste our old perception on the new situation, believing we have an identity and missing the crucial difference. Warming up our past. It's called prolonging your past thinking the same old thoughts, perceiving people in the same hackneyed ways, uh, not picking out, not picking up the pot- potential for change, for learning, for alteration, transformation, for the things that are different. So Yoni Somanasikara is the deliberate skill in finding new ways into something. The commentary actually interestingly defines Yoniso Manasikara not just in terms of quality but in terms of finding tricks, finding skills, finding ways in. You know, it's when you meditate, you need to meet your own mind where it is at. No amount of insistence on technique will take you out of the necessity to actually meet you, your own story where it where it how it presents itself. You can hammer away at your particularly chosen pet technique for years. If you're not willing to actually meet your mind where it is at, your pet technique will do very little effect other than give you a feeling of failure and frustration. And maybe the justification to write off the Buddha or Buddhism or your teacher or your center or spirituality or whatever you want to write off. So, Finding the skill to apply attention is our latest of the virtues. In other words, what makes me curious? What takes me closer to something? What lets me engage with a situation, with a person, with a state? What helps? That's not so far from what we do in other places in our life. We're all very interested, say, to find techniques against fear. Human learning is predicated on finding techniques to modulate anxiety states. If anything helps you to downregulate your anxiety, generally we remember that very well. Something that helps me cope better with an overwhelming situation. Ooh, I will remember that. I've got plenty of overwhelming situations in my life. You know, we've all got a childhood to survive. Yeah. So things that help me survive such stuff, oh, I will remember. I will make a note. It's not difficult for me to recall that technique, that trick. And many of us will hang on to that strategy for quite a while. A strategy that was maybe highly effective when we were three years old and we haplessly still flap around with 30 years later. Now that, you know, 
goalposts have shifted slightly and I still do my little technique, whatever that is. Try to get a strong man to help or throw a wobbly or tantrum or become very paralyzed and docile or become very noisy and angry and rambunctious. Depending what strategy has worked when I was three or five or seven, um, I may quite try this strategy for a long time, even though the game has changed. So, Yoni Somanasikara allows me to find new skills and to actually pay attention to what's happening. By slowing, by being methodical, by suspending judgment, <coughs> by finding ways to engage with, rather than splitting off and distracting, or splitting off and retreating, or splitting off by becoming sick, uh, I'm actually engaging with it. You recognize the theme, it's nothing new, Buddhism, meeting dukkha is what transforms dukkha, denying dukkha is what prolongs dukkha. If you want to marinate in something for the rest of your life, repress it, deny it, stop not having anything to do with it, and that's what will conserve it, yeah? Nothing new here, therapists. <laughs> so this is Buddhism for you, and one aspect of this is called Yonisomanasikara. It's the willingness to engage and developing the skills to engage. Because just heroic engagement doesn't necessarily do the job, yeah? Might just go back to overwhelm and be flat again. So it's the skill to figure out what it needs and what it is and how I can meet it. The other five factors... Some of them are very predictable. The second one is called um, Sila Sampada. It's accomplishment in virtue. Fairly predictable. Buddhists think ethics matter. Uh, it's not just what I think. It's how I am, how I behave, how I relate with others. Uh, huge issue. Sila is the basic Buddhist technique to be happy. It's not about just morality. That's what Western thinking is about. Uh, but Buddhists think your best chance is to be happy is to be moral. Yeah. If you want to be happy, be moral. Not because happiness makes for uh, more morality makes for harmony. It also does that. But quite selfishly, if you want to be happy, it's better not to terrorize other people. Yeah. It's better not to get in trouble with the law. It's better not to get in trouble with your conscience. You maximize your chances for happiness if you behave, not because you should be obedient, because simply a life filled of fear, remorse, and the retaliation of the structural powers or the power of your conscience uh, are really bad to fight with. Yeah. If you don't make peace with those forces in your life, they're likely to get you. Yeah. Even if you get away from the state and if you get away from your neighbors, you might not get away from your conscience. You might have compunction. Things might bubble up. That's what happens in meditation. You stop running, and suddenly you start feeling bad about things that seemed quite long, long time ago. I spent years of doing this as a monk. Yeah? You spend regretting things where you have done when you didn't uh, think there was anything to regret. Then you end up actually fathoming the fallout of stuff you've been doing. Or worse, you haven't been doing. Yeah? So... Nothing surprising to find Sila Sampada, accomplishment of virtue in there. The next one is accomplishment of understanding. Titi Sampadam, yeah, pretty un we already have that in the Eightfold Path. We have, you know, getting things the right way helps a lot. Nothing surprising in there. And then two completely surprising items turn up. One of them is called uh, Chanda Sampada. Chanda means desire. So accomplishment in desire. That's an interesting topic, isn't it? Usually desire has a lot of bad press in Buddhism. So what am I to desire? In fact, what kind of accomplishment I have to, to have with, in terms of desire? The commentary is slightly nervous about this. It's easy. He says it is the, the accomplishment in desiring the wholesome. We detect a certain nervousness in the commentarial voice there. Obviously, this desire thing is, ish, is a bit fishy. You know? It's clearly 
iffy to have this in there because it could also be misunderstood, isn't it? Have more desire, accomplish your desires, refine your desires, isn't it? That's what we do, isn't it? That's what we mean when we speak of refinement here. It means I refine my desires. Means my desires become more expensive and more hard to gratify. That's what. Yeah, it's a powerful motor for you know consumerist ideology. Yeah. That you know creates affluent society. People with refined desire, not easily satisfied, discerning customers. You know? So these Buddhists here coming dangerously close to that concept. But the truth is, with no desire, no nothing moves. You know, if you don't have any desires in your life. You will not get out of your hammock. You know, just the sky is blue and the grass keeps growing without you. And what is there to do? You just kind of move back and forth, stay on your screen porch. Uh, without desire, we don't move. Polite desires we call aspirations. Bad desires we call greed, rapaciousness, voluptuousness, this kind of things. Our societies are very tolerant of desire. They think it's a big motor of activity. Only when it goes into addiction or when it goes to be too abusive, then desires are having bad press in our societies. Buddhists are a little more strict. They say, well, you know, there's a, there's a connection there in between, between pain, between suffering and uh, desire. But even Buddhists don't get away without desire. The bad word for desire, there are many bad words in Buddhism for desire, but the bad word is thirst, tanha. And there's more bad words, loba, this is the kind of sticky type of desire. And then we have raga, this is the kind of this type of desire, it comes at your dad, so <laughs> craving in big ways. Yeah. Uh, but then you have things like wish, yeah? then you have things like aspiration. And even Buddhists admit occasionally that you need that type of desire. You need a kind of desire, and then you need ride that desire so that it goes into a wholesome direction. Obviously, there's a slight risk. Some of the horses don't follow your orders, yeah? <laughs> and some of your riding skills may not be up to scratch, so you may occasionally make detours. But basically, you need that energy. You need interest. That's the cheapest translation of the term chanda. So that term also occurs in other contexts. If it is connected to sensuality, it generally has bad press. If it is connect connected to as karma chanda, uh, if it is connected to, say, the teachings as dhamma chanda, it, is, has, it has good press. It is rated to be of very great use. Learning to associate with the teachings, be interested with the teachings, connect with the the principles that underpin our phenomenological realities, you know, this is rated to be a very wholesome impulse. So Buddhism also is about generating wholesome forms of interest, even wholesome forms of passion. In fact, you can't really meditate unless you connect that somehow with your passion. If you just try to get rid of your passions, you will lead very quickly a very mummified life. It'll be fairly soon, fairly arid. You need to connect somehow with your own juices, with things that stimulate interest, that stimulate curiosity, that stimulate your capacity to relate with. Buddhists admit that. At one passage, which is a rare incident, it says, desire is to be given up by desire. And the term for it is tanha. You know, it's the worst possible term. It is by Engaging with desire that you give up desire. That's a powerful statement. And we all know if we, if we need to get up in the morning, and sometimes it's fear that does that, sometimes it's sheer discipline, and sometimes it's the wish that we do something, that something happened, that just lying there is not good enough, is not going to cut it. Yeah. We need to do things. And that energy has something to do with desire. A desire, obviously, preferably harnessed, preferably connected with wholesome objects and with a type of pursuit that has some hope that it brings about growth and deepening of understanding and stillness of mind. But, you know, 
If you have no energy at all, your first task is not to get wholesome. Your first task is to get energy, yeah? even at the risk of messing, messing it up, of going in the wrong direction. But you need something to get out of the blocks. You need something to get moving. And Buddhism acknowledges that necessity. So Chanda Sampada is the accomplishment of being able to engage with interest, desire, wish, the power that moves you. The next one is even further down the line. It is the accomplishment of self. The term is Atta. You know? Straight the opposite of what we keep hearing, namely that there is no self, that we should uh, bring ourselves into uh, acknowledgement, bring into acknowledgement that there is things are, our life is impersonal factors that make up our life and we should not just you know, teeth grittingly endure that fact or acknowledge it but we actually should reconcile with that fact impersonality of our experience is a big issue, this is one of the big discrepancies between Buddhist teaching and many other religions uh, Buddhism says your self notion is a fiction it's quite blunt about this it says much of your pain is around you trying to fix a self that basically doesn't exist. And because it doesn't exist, you, need, you keep having to invent it and keep having to patch it up and convince yourself and convince others that it's there and that it's solid and reliable and makes you happy. And it doesn't do that. <laughs> because it doesn't do that and because it doesn't dare, it takes a lot of energy to do this. We could go down that track and look at self, but that's not what I'd like to do tonight. It's uh, maybe fair to acknowledge that while it's easier to acknowledge impermanence because no intelligent people who have eyes to see and uh, look into the world will deny impermanence because it's so obvious. Uh, the dukkha aspect is also fairly easy to ascertain. Uh, the things hurt, the things don't give satisfaction. The things need energy to be maintained. Uh, whether you look at this in terms of uh, bodily frailty or whether you look at this in terms of thermodynamics and come up with entropy or, you know, however you're going to look at it, it's difficult to deny dukkha as, or unsatisfactoriness as something that is woven into our life. The third of the lakanas, the third of the characteristics is much more difficult to acknowledge because you need some meditative experience for this unless you actually sit there and have some experience that this thing that you have construed to be yourself actually has sizable holes and pauses and uh, is a lot more patchy than meets the eye if you bother to actually learn to still the mind you find out that all the bits you could identify with happen to be fairly sporadic or happen to be having sizable holes in them or pauses in between them and yet you, you feel you, f you keep feeling like there's something in there that is me and that persists through time for that you need some meditative experience it's not as apparent now, acknowledging that this lakana this mark of existence is a lot more difficult than the other two but here we are taught now we should perfect ourselves. Now that's an interesting statement and uses boldly the same terms it warns us usually of. Atta Sampada. Perfection of self. The commentary again says something slightly sheepish but I believe helpful. It says it means we are endowed with variety. It means we are capable of handling diversity. That perfection of self means we can handle things to be different. We can cope with pluralism. We cope with differing situations. We can cope with shifting goalposts. There is enough solidity in a sort of dynamic way in our notion of self that we can move and shift and adapt and survive. You see, the power is not that we get it right from the beginning. The power is that we learn to cope 
with shifting sands, with shifting goalposts, with shifting demands, with shifting situations. See, that's what our parents do. If all goes well, they create safety for you to feel safe. They don't create safety for you because safety is the ultimate truth of the universe, that things are safe. They are not. You know, it's their job to make things as safe as possible within a fairly unsafe situation. And you don't actually need things to stay that way. All you need is feel safe enough to make a couple of experiences, develop confidence, live your curiosity, learn a few tricks, get domesticated in the process, yeah? handle instincts, bodily functions, sense functioning, things like that. You don't need absolute stability or safety for that. You need a feeling of safe enough for you to do your growing business. And once that happens, you can cope quite well with shifting sands, shifting parents, shifting situations. You go to school, they tell you to use many adjectives. Yeah. Two or three years later, they tell you using many adjectives is just infantile. You should stop using adjectives. <laughs> you, know, you can cope with that. Yeah. Once you've got that adjective business down, you can cope with that, even if they play it unfair. We're quite good. You know? So you don't need stability. You need confidence to handle instability. You need enough stability to feel safe and establish confidence in your own capacities and in the trustworthiness of the folks around you. And then you cope with instability. We all do. We live by instability. If you read blood cells insisted that they go on strike, they won't transport any O2 and discard any CO2, you die very quickly. It's precisely the instability of that metabolism that makes our life possible. Any moment. When things start not changing and metabolizing, uh, you know, we get trouble. Aluminium not disintegrating. You know? um, forgot what the stuff is called that messes up our atmosphere coming from fridges and the like. Thank you. Because these beasts are not changing at the rate they would behave, uh, that makes their problem. Ozone in the wrong place, not breaking down or cropping up, that's the problem. But things changing we can cope quite well with if we have learned trusting our senses, trusting our faculties, trusting our environment and adapting where, where we need to learn. That's what Atasampada does. So, we have noble friendship, number one. We have accomplishment in virtue, number two. We have accomplishment in understanding, number three. We have accomplishment in desire, number four. We have accomplishment in self, number five. We're missing number six. Yeah? Number six is the accomplishment in diligence or application. It's our willingness to not drop the game. It's our developing our staying power. It's developing staying, hanging in there when the going gets tough, when we don't get gratified, when it doesn't look good, when the things we know we're still not able to live. When what we know we're still falling into the hole again. That quality is called, in Buddhism, earnestness in some way. It means... Not that we're quite serious about it. It means that we don't let up. Yeah. We don't expect to be gratified. That's where meditators sometimes suffer. They feel when they do everything right, you know, they don't experience suffering. But you still suffer even if you do everything right. Obviously, we don't write that in our brochures and we don't, you know, we only say that in closed circumstances. But, you know, you don't stop suffering just because you meditate you suffer more elegantly. <laughs> you, you take less suffering before you're willing to learn. You make more of your suffering rather than suffering stupidly you know, and trying to, to hit the same wall harder. You try to find out about walls and whether, you, whether you can hit it more gracefully or get up, get up more speedily or smile earlier once you find your feet again. Stop flagellating yourself for the things you suffer from. Yeah? Become your friend in the suffering. So that's what diligence does. It helps us to apply. It's that which 
allows us to stay with our energy, our power, our intelligence in the game. You know that. It's the capacity to get up when things went wrong. It's the capacity to reconcile after the row. It's the capacity to learn where I seem to be failing in. It's that stuff which makes us learning. It's never the most, the most gifted that make it to the top, yeah? just to be clear. If you look at biographies of guys who have made it to the top, it's never the most gifted. Yeah? The most gifted tend to be making it headways, but then usually they get outdone by somebody who is doing a compensatory number. Yeah? I practiced Aikido for many years, quite fanatically. Uh, and, you know, the founder of Aikido was a farmer's son. He wasn't a samurai to start with. He wasn't from a warrior's family. Then he, he, was, he was into the peace movement. You know, he was in a very embarrassing little scenario. Uh, he went to do settling in Manjuria where the Japanese actually invaded. So Japanese going to settle where Japanese invade, you know, not after they invaded, but before, so that the Japanese wouldn't invade. Yeah? So he was part of a very em embarrassing to the Japanese government peace movement. <laughs> yeah. While Japan was in a full program of national expansion like everybody else in those days. Um, so he was doing it all wrong. He's not even a Buddhist, actually. You know, he's a Shinto. Not even a mainstream Shinto, but actually a fringe Shinto. And then he was a kind of weak guy. He was too too weak to do judo with the big with the big blokes. You know, he was. You know, his mother didn't let him go to the judo class because he kept having, I think, pleurisy. Is it a bad infection for the lungs? And, you know, stay home and be with the girls. This is the guy who basically then became this fabulous martial artist, invented, synthesized Aikido, and you know, made, made something absolutely precious, which is now famous over the world. So he wasn't really very gifted. He did everything wrong you could possibly do wrong. Yeah. Peace pacifist, wrong, wrong family, uh, sickly youth, yeah. not being up there with the guys. Uh, but he stayed. His power came from staying with him. And you can look in just about every field where you have people who excel in some way, you will find that people have excelled because they struggled. And it's the skill in their struggle, it's the skill in the staying power that made them successful. So that's where meditators fall down. They sit down, they do everything right, and then they don't get good feelings. Or if the universe is a little more cruel, they get good feelings right away. <laughs> then they're hooked. They go and retreat and they expect this to continue. Oh, well, it didn't take me long. Feels good. Well, wow. Buddha took six years to get enlightened. Maybe I can outdo him, you know. Feels really good. You must be very close already. Yeah? <laughs> or once you've taken that bait, you know. Usually the universe has it in for you a little bit. You get miserable retreats start falling off, off your, you know, off your cushion, your kind of sleepiness kicks in, or misery kicks in, compulsive thinking. Remember all the, all the bass players of all pop groups you've ever listened to. <laughs> or you rehash your old relationships. Or, or you fantasize about relationships you're going to have. And suddenly your samadhi is gone, your good feelings are gone, your, your orientation is gone, and you just kind of wallow there marinating in your stew and it doesn't seem to change every trick doesn't seem to work and the universe is laughing at you see <laughs> gonna hang in there or gonna leave yeah. so if at that point we just think we're only doing it right if we get good feelings or we're only doing it as long as we get good feelings you're out very quick you know, that was the end of Buddhism for you at that point And if, if something in you says no, maybe either you're despairing enough or you have enough faith or you have enough friends or you have in some ways enough guts. Yeah? Maybe it's, usually it's a mixture of friends and despair and 
fear of loss of faith or something uh, something like that something that gets you keeps you at it yeah you may transform you may take your first cliff and once you know that you know that you can't expect to be gratified with good feelings for honestness of effort for seriousness of effort or for dedication to practice and this apamada thing is really important the staying power it's important in your job it's important in your relationship it's important with your kids it's important with your you know with your garden wherever you look staying with things is important we're all looking good if things go good if things go well yeah we're all looking pretty and good and we're feeling confident and full of beans the question is how how can we hang in if it's not going good the garden the kids the relationship the job the meditation you know you name it so apamada sampada the accomplishment of our skill to apply ourselves is a powerful ally good you still have them seven qualities that bring about the arising of the eightfold path Kalyana Mitita, noble friendship. Sila Sampada, accomplishment of virtue. Ditti Sampada, accomplishment in understanding. Chanda Sampada, accomplishment in desire. Atta Sampada, accomplishment in self. Apamada Sampada, accomplishment in application. And Yoni Sikara skillful reflection, appropriate attention, wise reflection or attention. The way, finding the skill in, finding the way in. I'm going to do a discount. If you want to forget five of them, keep noble friendship and keep wise reflection and wise attention. Don't forget those two. Okay. That was it for me for tonight. Thank you for your attention. If there are things I can clarify or are unbearably uh, woolly, uh, ask. If not, we'll meditate for a few more minutes and then I'll let you go. Or more precisely, I'll let Leslie say a few things. <laughs> ah, I didn't read the part. These things can be found. I haven't made this up. This is in the Maka Samyutta, in the 45th of the Samyuttas in the Connected Discourses, translated beautifully into English. It's a very hefty book. Uh, it's on page 1543, just to give you an idea what you're up to. Uh, but it's there. Ask Rebecca. <laughs> Good. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.